This episode of Pharmacy to Dose, the Critical Care Podcast, is proudly sponsored by Chiesi. Chiesi is a family-owned, research-focused, sustainable pharmaceutical company accredited with both B Corp and a benefit corporation status. Chiesi is making global changes that benefits patients, providers, and healthcare organizations with forward-looking and impactful initiatives. Chiesi appreciates the integral role that clinical pharmacists play in patient care and are proud to support this community. To learn more, visit chiesi.pharmacytodose.com. Again, that's C-H-I-E-S-I.pharmacytodose.com. Dose.com. The Critical Care PRN is dedicated to fostering the role of critical care pharmacists as essential members of the multidisciplinary patient care team. The Critical Care PRN's goal is to optimize drug therapy outcomes by promoting excellence and innovation in clinical pharmacy practice, research, and education. For more information, including how to become a member, go to critprn.accp.com. Again, that website is critprn.accp.com. Welcome to Pharmacy to Dose, the critical care podcast, a partner of the ACCP Critical Care PRN. And I'm your host, Nick Peters. And wherever you are and however you are listening, thank you. Now, this is the September 2023 Literature Review Series, and it's an extra special episode for two reasons. So not only was I so, so lucky to be joined by the emergency medicine and critical care pharmacy residents from IU Health, Caroline Blankemeyer and Garrett Terhune, but also the episode was recorded for the YouTube channel. However, I also learned uh, in this process how incredibly challenging video editing can be. So, the YouTube version of this episode is coming, but I didn't want to delay the audio, the classic podcast episode any further. Just like a few more days on my end. So, appreciate uh, the patience from everyone there. Now, uh, the September Literature Review Series episode, it leads off with the featured articles, top five of the best articles of the month. Then the discussion shifts to articles looking in our pulmonary disease states, PADIS, trauma, and neuro, followed by the category featuring articles voted on by you, friends of the pod, in the pharmacist featured section, aka the front of the fridge if you want to vote in future episodes, be sure to follow on Twitter or Instagram at Pharmacy2Dose, T-O-T-O-Dose. And then the episode closes with our non-clinical section, The Grab Bag. And no spoilers here, but this may be my favorite article of all of them that we've done. Um, so it's a really fun episode to record. Hand up, I'm extremely biased, but these are two of the smartest and most awesome pharmacy residents. Uh, very lucky that I got a chance to work with them. You all are very lucky that you get to hear all their knowledge and wisdom here. So without further ado, here we go. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. 
Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Welcome to the September 2023 Literature Review Series. If you're watching this on YouTube, you're the best. Thank you. Our first video podcast. And who better to be guinea pigs than the current residents at my institution? We have Garrett Turhune here, the PGY2 emergency medicine uh, from IU Health. And then, of course, Caroline Blankemeyer, the critical care resident from IU Health. They came here after their busy rotation day to update you all on the literature that's been published. Garrett, Caroline, thanks so much for joining. How are you? well so far yeah i'm doing pretty good too so far so good enjoying this lovely thursday (laughs) that's exactly right we're recording this before secm you all are both going to we're excited to be in phoenix and out of the indiana weather that is for sure because it has been a pretty unique form of terrible with cold weather now we didn't get tons of snow so can't say anything um now that being said we got some great articles, great literature to dive into. So without further ado, I think it's time to introduce our featured articles. Top five, top five. Top and five. today we got five of them. Top five articles. So Caroline, lead off our featured discussion with a study comparing blood glucose targets in the critically ill. What a sweet lead into our next article, our first one. The TGC FAST article published in the New England Journal of Medicine, which evaluated tight blood glucose control without early parental nutrition compared to conventional blood glucose control in the ICU. Before diving into this article, let's quickly review the history of research on tight ICU blood glucose control. First, the Leuven Surgical Trial, which evaluated tight glucose control in the surgical ICU and found a lower ICU mortality by targeting a blood glucose less than 110. Then the Leuven Medical Trial came out evaluating the same thing, but in medical patients. This trial did not find the same results, and there was no difference in hospital mortality. With conflicting findings from the Leuven trials, the NICE trial followed and combined both of the trials, including medical and surgical ICU patients, And this trial found an increase in 90-day mortality with a more intense glucose control. Hypoglycemia was the major contributor to this increased mortality. This leads us to today's practice recommending a blood glucose target less than 180 in hospitalized patients. The patients in the Leuven trial were started on parental nutrition within two days, which is no longer recommended due to lack of benefit and increased harm with infections, hyperglycemia, and delayed recovery. The authors of the TGC FAST study theorized that the early use of parental nutrition in non-standard blood glucose targets confound previous study results. They also hypothesized that with the new logic system, which is a computer algorithm that instructs nurses how to adjust insulin and delayed parental nutrition, that a tight glucose would result in improved mortality from the ICU. This study was a prospective multi-center randomized controlled trial in Belgium evaluating patients admitted to an ICU to a tight glucose control with a target between 80 and 110, or to a liberal glucose control with a target less than 215. 
Glucose was monitored every one to four hours, and insulin was only administered as a continuous intravenous infusion and a central venous catheter. Interventions were stopped once the patient began eating, no longer had a central venous catheter, or discharged from the ICU. All patients received enteral nutrition as soon as possible, and parenteral nutrition was only begun after one week in the ICU. Over 9,000 patients were enrolled from September 2018 through August 2022, and on average were 67 years old and were males, with only 20% having a history of diabetes. And most of these patients were admitted for a, a cardiac surgery or complications thereafter, and there was no difference in the primary efficacy outcome of ICU length of stay or the safety outcome of death within 90 days. There was also no difference in some secondary outcomes, including liver dysfunction, a new infection, or mechanical ventilation. Notably, there was also no difference in severe hypoglycemic episodes, which was defined as a glucose less than 40. Additionally, patients with a neurologic or neurosurgical admission might have had a lower mortality with a tighter glucose control, but this is only hypothesis generating. There was a higher chance of developing an acute kidney injury and being placed on renal replacement therapy in the renal um, in the liberal glucose control group. But I think this study really showed that there is there wasn't a difference in length of stay or mortality with a tighter glucose control in patients that were on enteral nutrition. Compared to the NICE sugar trial, there were similar PACHI2 scores indicating these patients were similar in severity of illness. Additionally, compared to previous studies, TGC FAST also had lower rates of hypoglycemia with 1% versus 5 to 7% in the other trials. So utilizing a computer program helped reduce hypoglycemic events with a more aggressive glucose control, with a more aggressive glucose goal. I don't think this study shows that we should aim for a more aggressive glucose goal, but that hypoglycemia can be avoided in these patients, which was a concern in previous studies. It also showed that there isn't much harm in allowing permissive hyperglycemia as well. Yeah, a couple thoughts, because this was a, uh, a really well-done study. Uh, just met that pre-specified sample size, right? 9,230 needed. And how many were in that intention-to-treat analysis? 9,230. So uh, I was also surprised with the similar rates of hypoglycemia. And they, you know, the authors note that this trial population is likely representative of like adult critically ill patients in high income countries. So like places like North America, for example, but if you're going to more resource limited settings, this probably isn't the answer, which makes sense. They're using a computer program. Um, I was sad that this wasn't the Leuven 3 trial. We couldn't complete the trilogy. I mean, it makes sense. The first two were single center, so this was multi-center, so it couldn't. Um, it did have the original center, the original author, you know. My question is external validity. Like, how many of us have the logic insulin algorithm? We have a computer that controls our insulin, and I hate it. So, you know... The authors also note that the original study, they had expert and in extensively trained nurses in addition to early IV feeding. So the only thing I want to point out, table one in that supplementary um, or in the protocol in the supplementary appendix, like the material, they had a really cool comparison table looking at the differences between the Leuven studies, the single center medical and surgical one, and the nice sugar trial kind of detailing why we got here. So a uh, really cool study. Um, I agree, a sweet way to lead us off uh, here, Caroline. So see what I did there? So with an emergency medicine pharmacy resident being featured, 
You knew we would eventually talk about tranexamic acid. So Garrett, tell us about your study looking at TXA with a somewhat unique indication. We love our TXA here in the ED um, due to its many different uses um, and applicability here. Previous studies, such as TIC2, attempted to define the role of TXA in intracerebral hemorrhage, but did not focus specifically on patients either prescribed or receiving non-vitamin K antagonist oral anticoagulants. The tranexamic acid for NOAC ICH, or TIC-NOAC, trial published in the AHA journal Stroke was a double-blind, randomized, placebo-controlled trial at six Swiss stroke centers that aimed to assess the efficacy and safety of tranexamic acid in patients with a hemorrhagic stroke on DOACs. This study enrolled patients with an ICH within 12 hours of symptom onset and 48 hours from their last DOAC dose. A total of 63 patients were randomized to receive either TXA or matching normal saline placebo regimens and were followed for a total of 90 days duration. TXA was dosed as a one gram bolus over 10 minutes followed by a um, second one gram infusion over an eight hour time frame. The primary outcome of the study was the presence of hematoma expansion at 24 hours on repeat CT imaging which was defined as either a hematoma volume increase of at least 33% or six mil increase from baseline. This outcome mirrors other um, trials that were reviewed within ATTACH-2 and INTERACT-4 regarding ICH management. This study also reviewed subgroups regarding onset to treatment time of less than or equal to six hours or greater than six hours from symptom onset. A total of 67 patients were enrolled from 2016 in December um, through September of 2021. And within the two treatment groups, 32 patients were ultimately randomized to TXA, while 31 were randomized to placebo. Regarding the primary outcome of hematoma expansion, there is no statistically significant difference between the two groups, with 38% of the TXA and 45% of the placebo group showing hematoma expansion. No secondary outcomes showed significance, including thromboembolic events and overall safety compared to placebo. Subgroup analysis revealed a potential benefit of TXA utilization to prevent hematoma expansion within a six-hour onset. Of note, patients were not excluded if they received additional reversal agents outside of TXA. However, when comparing the groups, 69% and 61% of the TXA and placebo groups respectively received four-factor PCC for reversal. It's important to note that no patients received arachidonic acid or DOAC-specific reversal agents. This additional treatment is pertinent to consider due to the potential to confound results of this study. When reviewing this study to determine its impact on current clinical guidelines and practice, several key pieces of information stand out. First, the potential benefit of TXA and ICH management appears to be restricted to within a six-hour onset of symptoms. This is pertinent as it feeds to the adage that time is brain, and evaluation and intervention need to occur rapidly after the patient initially presents. Second, this trial utilizes clinical markers that are in line with current recommendations with studies uh, contributing to the AHA ASA 2022 uh, stroke guidelines regarding spontaneous ICH management. Several potential limitations could play a role in the decision to implement TXA in practice based on this study. First, the study failed to meet their uh, pre-specified power based on a lack of continued funding. This left the study 46 patients short of the pre-planned sample size of 109 total patients. The authors note that even if this study was fully powered, it would likely have not shown significance um, in terms of a difference amongst the groups due to an updated hematoma um, expansion risk in patients taking DOAX. Also of note, patients were not excluded if they received other hemostatic agents such as four-factor PCC or DOAC-specific reversal agents. 
These interventions are recommended within current guideline practices and are widely implemented, but could contribute to a masked effect of TXA and ICH. Third, the researchers did not utilize TEG or Rotom, which are very commonly utilized to determine if a patient's LY30 or LI30 were elevated, indicating potential benefit for TXA administration to aid in clot stabilization. So overall, this study provides a unique insight into TXA utilization, um, but it's still an area that needs to be continued to expand over the coming years in research. First things first, NOAC versus DOAC. How did reviewer two let this med safety issue pass? And then they correct A's to ands as you're going through texts. So, all right, sidebar <laughs> over. Yeah, you mentioned most of them got PCC median dose right around that 1,500 units. Um, exploratory analysis looking at, you know, they looked at study participants who will also be Anexa I eligible, right? The Indexin A alpha versus PCC study. So, um, a couple things that stood out to me, interesting that the majority of them were on rivaroxaban and not a pixaban, right? A little difference, um, from that perspective. They also over 80% of them had a DOAC plasma level available on admission. So, I don't know if that's just their practice there, the difference between the clinical and the research side, but that just doesn't feel like something that that happens, at least in our real world, potentially, where, you know, where we are. You know, you mentioned the six hours. That just met significance because when they looked in that per-protocol analysis, it did not. But in that intent to treat, agreed. What do you think, like, do you think TXA has a role for, like, anticoagulation reversal at all? Uh, it's it's come up before um, in some of the trauma patients I've cared for, and I feel like it has a very limited role. Um, for me personally, I would want to see either a TAG or a Rotom, depending on the institution that I'm at, um, before initiating it to ensure that there's actually going to be a tangible benefit associated with it. Um, in addition, if I'm at an institution that's not a trauma center where it may be a, a need to stabilize a patient and ship to a higher institution of care, um, CRASH 2 and 3 and then PASH trials, which I know we've reviewed previously, um, have shown kind of some initial benefit with that in terms of getting into a higher level of care with the, the initial mortality, but not something I'm going to implement if I have other resources available or other reversal agents available at this time, just based off the of current literature. Agreed. Love the plug, Garrett. Um, let's shift gears here. This is actually a first for a literature review series episode. First time ever, because our next article has actually been discussed before. Let me explain, right? We didn't have all the info at that time. Uh, Leslie Hamilton highlighted the optimal BP study from ESOC in a rapid reaction episode this past summer. But all we had, we were scouring the internet. We were getting Twitter screenshots, reaching out to people who were there. So we were just getting word of mouth info. Papers finally been published. We have all the info. So Caroline, fill us in on all the details we were missing from this neurocritical care article. Yes, yeah, so continuing on a high note, this next article is the optimal BP trial comparing intensive versus conventional blood pressure lowering after endovascular thrombectomy and acute ischemic stroke, which was published in JAMA. The guidelines currently recommend that it's reasonable to consider a blood pressure less than 180 over 105 after mechanical thrombectomy with a moderate recommendation. But this study is really interesting because usually after patients have a thrombectomy, we decrease their blood pressure to achieve normotension, but typically we allow some of that permissive hypertension after an acute ischemic stroke. 
A previous study called the Enchanted Trial evaluated intensive blood pressure management compared to permissive hypertension after alteplase administration, and they found a decrease in intracranial hemorrhage with a lower blood pressure, but no difference in a modified Rankin scale at 90 days or adverse reactions. This kind of leaves us with questions on which path to choose. The Optimal BP trial was another multi-center randomized clinical trial in South Korea, also evaluating an intensive blood pressure management during the first 24 hours after a successful endovascular thrombectomy following an acute ischemic stroke. Adult patients post-thrombectomy were included with a TK2B reperfusion or greater and and two systolic blood pressure readings greater than 140 within two hours of reperfusion. Patients were excluded if they had contraindications to two antihypertensive therapies, had a symptomatic um, intracranial hemorrhage during or immediately after thrombectomy, serious medical or surgical illness, or a pre-stroke disability defined as a modified Rankin scale of 3 to 5. The primary efficacy outcome was a modified Rankin scale as a dichotomous scale of 0 to 2, indicating functional independence, or 3 to 6, meaning dependence or death. The primary safety outcome was symptomatic intracranial hemorrhage within 36 hours or stroke-related death at 90 days. From June 18, 2020 to November 29, 2022, 306 patients were randomly assigned within two hours of reperfusion to intensive blood pressure management with a systolic blood pressure goal of less than 140 or conventional with a blood pressure goal between 140 to 180. Blood pressure was monitored non-invasively and treated with intravenous medications with a goal time to target blood pressure um, of one hour post-randomization. So, of course, nicardipine was the preferred agent, uh, but hydralazine and labetalol could be used at the provider's discretion. Of note, vasopressors were not used to augment blood pressure to 140, but fluids and inotropes could be utilized for clinically significant hypotension. Patients on average were 73-year-olds, and were mostly male with an NIHSS score of 13 prior to thrombectomy. Additionally, at enrollment, the mean systolic blood pressure was 155, and all baseline characteristics were not significantly different. But the trial was actually terminated early due to the safety concerns brought up by the Enchanted 2-MT trial, which was also a study that evaluated intensive versus permissive blood pressure after thrombectomy. And that study found worse functional outcomes with a more intense treatment. But the optimal BP study found the same results with a significant difference in the primary outcome of the modified Rankin scale, with functional independence being significantly worse in the intensive management group. Additionally, there wasn't a difference in symptomatic intracranial hemorrhage or mortality. I think this article in combination with the Enchanted 2-MT trial kind of leaves us with this unknown area. Should we really be decreasing blood pressure or should we allow more permissive hypertension? This contradicts what we have previously been doing in practice, and this article might indicate we are a bit too aggressive with our blood pressure management after thrombectomy. But questions still remain on what's what's the optimal goal. So a couple things here. Like interestingly to me, like only about a third of patients received a thrombolytic. So we're going to put a pin in that. We'll come back to that concept just a little bit later. Um, I wanted to point out E-Table 3. In that supplementary appendix, the changes of blood pressures between group and the conventional management group also met the intensive goal of less than 140. Like, you know, their pressure at 24 hours was, the mean was 137 
and in the intensive, it was 128. So just kind of interesting that even though they were comparing them, both groups met that lower goal. You know, then they looked at all those subgroup populations, right? Aspect scores, tiki scores, all the things. Feels like we're still searching for that perfect BP range post thrombectomy. You know, Caroline, is there is there a general practice that you see being done post thrombectomy, or is it really provider patient dependent? I've really seen provider and patient dependent. Um, I've seen a lot of variability based off of what their tiki score is. So I really don't think there's a straight consensus from what I've seen in practice. No, and if there, it feels like if there is a consensus, it'll it it shouldn't be on the low side. Um, now let's stay in this same realm, blood pressure management, following thrombectomy in acute ischemic stroke. Um, the authors of this study, right, published in JAMA, they also mention that Enchanted 2 results demonstrating worse outcomes, the Chinese study, if their systolic pressure was less than 120. But these authors question, what if it's less than 140? What if it's less than 160, a more common practice in the U.S.? Now you're probably listening to this being like, wait a second. Nick, Caroline just told us the results of the optimal BP trial. Well, these were happening semi-simultaneously, right? We're just getting the results um, now. So we have the best two trial published in JAMA, blood pressure management after endovascular therapy for acute ischemic stroke. So U.S. pragmatic, multi-site, randomized, open-label futility design. We'll get to that in a sec. Blinded endpoint clinical trial. So... It was futility design study, meaning it was evaluating the futility of moderately lowering your systolic blood pressure in the first 24 hours post-successful recanalization. Now, they define futility as evidence of significant harm. So, um, I talked about those patients they included, excluded, really if they had significant cardiac disease. HEFREF, they were, had an LVAD, they were on ECMO, etc. Um, enrolled patients, they were randomized to one of three blood pressure targets, less than 180, less than 160, and less than 140. And treatment was initiated within 60 minutes of successful recanalization, maintained for 24 hours, and IV nicardipine was that first-line agent, just like in the optimal BP trial. So, Two primary endpoints, the follow-up infarct volume at 36 hours and utility-weighted MRS modified Rankin scale score at 90 days. So 120 patients randomized between January 2020 and February 2022. Couple of points to make note of on those baseline characteristics. In the less than 180 group, they had a lower baseline NIH stroke scale, more anticoagulant use, and a higher incidence of M2 occlusions. And the less than 140 group, ironically, had a smaller cerebral infarct volume at baseline. I think the lower baseline NIHSS score in the less than 180 group makes sense because they, you would think it's less severe based on those symptoms. Um, just spitballing there. Now, looking at both primary endpoints, the systolic blood pressure targets of less than 140 and less than 160 did not meet pre-specified futility compared to less than 180 couple notes here, right? 92% of patients were at the blood pressure goal. And specifically, those mean 24-hour blood pressures, they're about the same 120, 130 in all the groups. And that's the thing with these trials is you got to pull those supplements and take a peek at what the pressures are. Because even if their goal is something, 
we're getting more and more studies showing that what their goal is and what their mean or median BP is might be something different. And, you know, they didn't even have the results of the optimal BP study, but these authors questioned the possible benefit of targeting a lower blood pressure post thrombectomy. No difference in MRS score, in hospital mortality, rates of ICH. The phrase they use is dampened enthusiasm for lower systolic blood pressure targets. Well said. I, I couldn't said it better myself. Now, Garrett, close out our featured article section by highlighting the use of a specific class of medications in our TBI patient population. So nothing can be more of a headache than trying to determine when to resume or start medications after a traumatic brain injury. A TBI is an unfortunate but highly prevalent adverse event associated with multiple different variations of trauma. It's been shown that there is significant morbidity and mortality associated with these injuries, and management of patients can be difficult to do due to the variety of presentations and patient characteristics. Published in Critical Care Explorations, the authors of this retrospective cohort study conducted in the ICUs of 18 different level one trauma centers in the U.S. from March 2014 through June of 2018 used data that was originally published in the Track TBI study. They aimed to describe patterns of utilization of beta blockers in critically ill patients with moderate to severe TBI, as well as to examine the association of early beta blocker utilization with functional and clinical outcomes. This study enrolled patients aged 17 or older with moderate to severe TBIs designated by a GCS of less than 13 who were admitted to the ICU after a blunt force injury. A total of 450 patients were deemed to be eligible for inclusion in the study, of which 57 received early beta blocker administration. The primary research objective was to examine beta blocker utilization patterns following injury, defined as any beta blocker exposure during the first seven days of ICU admission, including both cardioselective and non-cardioselective. Researchers also reviewed Glasgow Outcome Scale extended scores at six months following up amongst patients receiving early beta blockers. The study also reviewed secondary outcomes regarding mortality, quality of life, length of hospital stay, and life satisfaction for patients. Within the two groups, the patients who received early beta blockers were often older on average and more likely to have pre-existing hypertension, making them more likely to have prior exposure to our beta blockers before their injury occurred. Regarding the primary outcome of exposure to beta blockers during the first seven days of the ICU, there was no significant difference in GO scores at six months between the two groups. Among the participants receiving early beta blockers, the dose and timing of administration varied substantially. When reviewing this study to determine its overall impact on current management of TBI patients, several key pieces of information stand out. First, this study utilized both cardioselective and non-cardioselective beta blockers, which poses an interesting question. What's the role of lipid-soluble beta blockers, such as propranolol, that can cross the blood-brain barrier to exert their effects intracranially? The authors note that this could be a potential mechanism of benefit for beta blocker utilization. Another interesting area um, with this study is that almost 40% of the patients in the early beta blocker exposure group received only a single dose of beta blocker. This calls into question the number of exposures necessary to provide a long-term benefit when monitoring GO scores. Third, current widely followed U.S. recommendations in the Brain Trauma Foundation guidelines don't make recommendations regarding beta blocker usage in early management. These guidelines instead make recommendations regarding implementation of decompressive craniectomy, hyperosmolar therapies, and anesthetics, analgesics, and sedatives. This may hinder providers from reaching for a beta blocker early on in the patient's ICU stay due to concerns about 
additional evidence being needed to actually make a definitive recommendation on implementation and common practice. Overall, this study helps to provide a basis for future prospective studies to help define um, the treatment and management of moderate to severe TBIs in our ICU patients. Yeah, that was kind of surprising, wasn't it? More patients receiving cardioselective beta block. Cardioselective, right, example, like metoprolol, for example, right? Like, that was kind of somewhat surprising. You know, you mentioned subgroup analysis didn't show any difference in outcomes. Small hypothesis generating, but I think that's one of those we're taught, right? Oh, they mm-hmm. cross the blood-brain barrier. You you got to use propranolol, and it's just interesting, right, the the findings of this when they when studies challenge kind of those those mantras that we learn. Um, when you look at it, right, less than 15% received them in the first week, which on the surface may be surprising, but then when you look, their mean hospital length of stay was almost four weeks. So mm-hmm. I think the patients you're using them in are the ones that have a longer length of stay, probably the ones that have more, the higher injury, injury severity scores, that kind of thing. Um, the other thing of note, you mentioned this was from the track TBI database, right? That was from March, 2014 through June, 2018. So be curious if things are a little different now, what that would look like. Um, do you, where do you stand? Do you have a preference? Are you, there are three Hills, I guess you could be team cardio selective team, non cardio selective team. I don't care. I don't have a major preference. Um, <laughs> honestly, in practice, I feel like a lot of times what I've reached for is propranolol, but that's due to crossing the blood-brain barrier. Um, and typically, I'm reaching for these more in our patients where we've excluded everything else, and there's potential for neurostorming um, just to, to get that blood-brain barrier penetration. Um, but I don't have a specific one that I typically reach for more often than others, per se. If we lose propranolol to this, what kind of fun fact are we going to be able to ask students, right, when right. they come through? That right. was, like, on the small list. So, um, all right. We made it through our featured articles. Now, uh, listeners of the Literature Review Series, you may be familiar that typically each guest kind of has their own category, and I kind of fill in, but we're all over the place. We get to cover tons and tons of things. That's what we get to do on our first video, and we are starting off in our second subsection with, I think, some pulmonary articles. We're going to hit the respiratory system. So Caroline's going to help us breathe easier in our first article, reviewing a pulmonary disease that can definitely cause some tachypnea within the ICU treatment team. So this contemporary review was a really nice overview on the pathophysiology, epigenetic mechanisms, and new treatment for pulmonary hypertension. The authors go through the biochemical pathophysiology in relation to new drug discoveries, updated diagnostic techniques, barriers to treatment of pulmonary hypertension, including socioeconomics and comorbidities, and lastly, the treatment of pulmonary hypertension and updates. As a pharmacist, I'm innately drawn to the novel drug that was mentioned in this review, so Tattercept, which is a first-in-class active activin signaling inhibitor. This drug is a biologic agent that resembles the TGF-beta-BMPR2 axis, leading to more anti-proliferative and less less proliferative pathways in the pulmonary artery, endothelial, and smooth muscle. This article highlights quite a few articles investigating this drug in a really nice table. 
And it also briefly discussed combination therapy or sequential add-on therapy as more beneficial than maintaining monotherapy in these patients. Lastly, they discussed difficulties in clinical trials for pulmonary hypertension, including low patient population, indolent clinical course, and heterogeneity in treatment background. They suggested various ways of designing clinical trials, including adaptive trial designs with interim analysis and predetermined modifications that can improve improve efficiency of trials. Overall, this article was a great review of pathogenesis, novel treatment, and future directions for pulmonary hypertension. They had great charts, diagrams, and tables to convey information in a really easy-to-read format. Not only did you uh, mention the great review, right, of the kind of new big drug on the horizon, but you also talked about those great figures and tables. Completely agree. Great review article if you're a visual learner, right? Figure one is an incredible visual on the current therapeutic targets, and then the other side of it is novel or developing targets. And you can kind of see how narrow our current one is and how wide that therapeutic target that we're looking at. And then figure eight even visualizes new clinical trial approaches for pulmonary arterial hypertension treatment. So uh, bonus, right, that table two, the orphan drug designation, so tatercept. So definitely seeing more. If that piqued your interest, pulmonary hypertension part two, Recent episode featuring Zach Smith, pharmacist from Michigan. Definitely give that a listen. Great highlight. Starting off our uh, every breath you take, our respiratory section. Now let's go ahead and travel across the pond. We're going to discuss an outpatient intervention that could limit inpatient admissions in our COPD population. So some of us are probably familiar with those long-term beneficial effects of macrolides in COPD, right? Azithromycin. And how use can help prevent COPD exacerbations. But is this a class effect with macrolides? Or can we use another one of our favorite antibiotics with atypical coverage, doxycycline? One of my favorite physicians ever said, if you died and you didn't get steroids or doxy, you didn't get a chance. So shout out to doxy. And this is a trial of long-term doxycycline therapy on exacerbation rate in patients with stable COPD. Published in the Blue Journal, a.k.a. the American Journal of Respiratory and Critical Care Medicine. So, a UK double-blind, randomized, placebo-controlled trial. Remember, in an outpatient setting, right? And there was two treatment arms. Doxycycline, 100 milligrams daily, or placebo. Now, primary outcome was the COPD exacerbation rate per person year. They're trying to cut down on the exacerbation, just like the macrolides do. And patients were enrolled if they were 45 years or older, had moderate moderate to very severe COPD, and received treatment with antibiotics and or steroids for an exacerbation in the last 12 months. So patients were excluded if their COPD was unstable in the previous month or really had some significant cardiac disease. So 222 patients were randomized from July 2014 through July 2017, met that pre-specified power calculation. 65% were prescribed triple therapy, just to kind of give you the baseline characteristics there. But no difference was found in that COPD exacerbation rate, even after they adjusted for multiple baseline characteristics. I know Team Doxy is sad right now, but all hope is not lost because in COPD and ARDS, we've had this discussion on phenotypes. And specifically in this trial, in patients with an eosinophil count less than 300 cells, doxycycline treatment cut that exacerbation rate in half, which in this study, right, about 75% of those participants had less than 300 eosinophils. So 
I there's definitely going to be more to come on that great research from our English colleagues. Love that. What a great system that we're starting off with there. Now, we're going to shift gears here a little bit into our PADIS section. And kicking off our PADIS section is a JACCP article featuring a friend of the pod, first author Mitch Buckley, and of course, senior author Sandy Kane Gill. And it's a systematic review summarizing existing published literature on the impact of critical care pharmacist-led interventions targeting pain, agitation, or delirium, PAD, in adult mechanically ventilated ICU patients. So nine studies were included. I'd encourage everyone to look at table one to learn more about these individual studies. But table one, it's kind of like the good appetizer, right? It's soft pretzel, maybe some table side guac. But table two and three, those are the main courses. They break down interventions from each study and demonstrate that pharmacist-led interventions reduced our time on the ventilator, reduced time in the ICU, reduced time in the hospital, and also significantly reduced the amount of opioids and sedative medication use. So, Some may say these findings are controversial. We didn't have an effect on mortality, delirium, blah, blah, blah. I'd argue those previous benefits are still very important and still have big impacts. I mean, you may hear my voice. I think it's bonkers. It's absolutely nuts that we're still having to publish these studies to justify our presence on multidisciplinary teams. But there's a great article to have to available, have available on that zip drive to reference when needed. Now, let's go ahead and shift back into our emergency medicine mindset and evaluate how our choice of paralytic may subsequently impact our sedative use and dose. So, Garrett, take it away. So, to a pharmacist, there's nothing more paralyzing than a patient who's inadequately sedated after a rapid sequence intubation. Because of this, a multi-center study with multiple pharmacist authors was published in the American Journal of Emergency Medicine. The study reviewed a crucial aspect of rapid sequence intubation that can be easily overlooked in the utter chaos of an emergency department, just time to initiation of analgesia or sedation post-intubation. This is pertinent to consider due to the variable duration of action of paralytics used during RSI. Rocuronium has an average duration of 30 to 60 minutes compared to the average succinylcholine duration of about 10 minutes. This can often lead to patients experiencing awake paralysis after their initial induction sedative is metabolized if analgesia or sedation isn't initiated in a timely fashion. The authors included a total of 200 patients divided evenly amongst succinylcholine and rocuronium groups to determine time to initiation of analgesia or sedation. Patients were excluded if they experienced an out-of-hospital cardiac arrest, were intubated prior to arrival, or received Sigamidex for rocuronium reversal within a 60-minute time frame of intubation. Amongst both groups, Atomidate was the most commonly utilized induction agent. The authors of this study observed no statistically significant difference in the time to initiation of post-intubation sedation among patients receiving rocuronium when compared to succinylcholine. However, when comparing the overall weight-based doses of propofol and fentanyl post-intubation, it was noted that the patients initially paralyzed with succinylcholine received statistically significantly higher rates. Authors hypothesize that the shorter duration of action of succinylcholine may have prompted a more rapid titration of sedative or analgesic regimens compared to the rocuronium groups. This could have also potential uh, benefits due to 
or this could also potentially been due to the increased movement associated with succinylcholine as it was metabolized compared to patients who remain paralyzed after ocuronium administration, which could have prompted nursing and physicians to titrate sedation to a more rapid rate. In addition, the authors recommend institutions implement post-intubation order sets and increase provider and nursing awareness in order to achieve appropriate and timely administration of sedative and analgesic regimens. Yeah, I think it's great that there was no difference in time to initiation based on what paralytic that they've received. But I think this highlights that we are guessing with doses and infusion rates if someone's paralyzed, right? Because, you know, you mentioned a statistically significant difference and essentially, right, the rocuronium group had the starting propofol dose. They were at 10, right? So they were on the one that you started it at. So I think it's just something important to note, right, that we are guessing and that, you know, it might be hypothesis generating, but physiologically it makes sense that the group who can express their pain and agitation would have a, would need, would require a higher rate. And the question would be, you know, how many people are getting the wrong rate because of that? So um, really great article, great highlight. Um, Garrett, close out our PADIS section, highlighting an editorial that features close collaboration from multiple international medical societies. What can be worse than a post-operative patient taking ages to metabolize their paralytic agent from intubation post-operatively? To facilitate the appropriate reversal of neuromuscular blocking agents, this letter to the editor was published in the journal Anesthesiology to review the collective recommendations of the task forces created by the American Society of Anesthesiologists and the European Society of Anesthesiology and Intensive Care regarding the interoperative utilization of neuromuscular monitoring. While each group published their NMBA guidelines independently, they collaborated on the overarching recommendations regarding monitoring and reversal of neuromuscular blockade. This letter highlights the importance of objective confirmation of a train of four ratio of at least 0.9 to guide appropriateness of tracheal extubation postoperatively. The task force recommends preferentially using Sigamidex over neostigmine for reversal of rocuronium in patients who are in deep, moderate, or shallow muscular blockade. The recommendation was made to limit the usage of neostigmine to cases of minimal neuromuscular blockade induced by rocuronium. If clinicians desire to utilize neostigmine for a deeper blockade reversal, the committee's collective recommendation is that there may be an increased time to attain a train of four ratio of at least 0.9. By implementing train of four monitoring preferentially at the adductor paresis muscle after ulnar nerve stimulation, Surgery centers may be able to augment current practice to improve clinical outcomes and decrease the risk of adverse respiratory events by minimizing residual paralysis postoperatively. So by working together, the ASA and ESAIC provided clear and concise sets of joint recommendations to summarize their guidelines and improve the overall patient care and outcomes. Yeah, something that stood out to me from the letter was... Quote, neither task force was aware of the existence or mission of the other. So this is the American Society of Anesthesiologists and the European Society of Anesthesiology and Intensive Care. We need to be better at collaborating in medicine. We can't, we don't even have our biggest groups talking to get together. And you know, because like in the editorial, one of the ways they justify the need for guidance is they reference a 2019 study. 
The study that showed the high rate of inappropriate management of residual paralysis, whether it's people getting extubated with still high train of four readings, what have you. Just curious why they knew it existed, why they didn't address it at all. Either way, we we got something. We have some guidance. So love that for us. Um, Now, we just finished the PADIS section, but we're going to stay in the brain, I think, actually. And we're going to highlight some neuro studies here. This episode of Pharmacy to Dose is proudly sponsored by Chiesi. Providing innovative pharmacologic therapies for over 85 years, Chiesi is committed to supporting the clinical pharmacist community and the patients you serve. To learn more, visit chiesi.pharmacytodose.com. So Caroline, lead off our neuro section, uh, reviewing an article that compares management strategies for one of our neurocritical care patient populations. So this article is a proof of concept study from a post hoc analysis of the Miller spasm study researching cerebral vasospasms post subarachnoid hemorrhage. This post hoc analysis specifically looked at transcranial Doppler values to evaluate effectiveness of the milrinone on decreasing vasospasms. Transcranial Dopplers, or TCDs, measure velocity of blood through a blood vessel in the brain. When the velocity is increased from baseline, there is likely a vasospasm occurring as blood flow is trying to overcome a decreased area to flow through. In this study, they targeted a MAP of 100 to 120 with the addition of norepinephrine then in moderate to severe vasospasms classified by a CTA imaging, milrinone was added. There were only 13 patients included that had full sets of TCDs completed, and they actually found a decrease in the velocity with the addition of milrinone indicating an improvement in vasospasms. These patients did require an increase in norepinephrine with the addition of milrinone to achieve MAP goals, but this post hoc analysis validates the proposed mechanism behind Merlinone's uh, effectiveness on improving cerebral vasospasms by relaxing the spasm vessel. Of note, this study only evaluated vasospasms in the MCA vessels, so caution should be made extrapolating this evidence to other vessels that have spasms. Yeah. 13 patients included here from that 94 patient Miller spasm cohort. But, right, as much as it's hypothesis generating, it's some of the best and most detailed information that we have at this point. Um, So I think this is really interesting because a lot of times, you know, cerebral vasospasm, it gets diagnosed by clinical exam or those TCDs, what this article did. So just an interesting post hoc analysis for, what we can do treatment wise for something that it feels like we're limited in a lot of ways. And it's really focused on prevention. So um, great post hoc analysis um, here. Now we move from comparing our minimal treatment strategies for cerebral vasospasms in aneurysmal subarachnoid hemorrhage patients to another disease state with minimal evidence-based treatment options. So published in JAMA Neurology, is a systematic review and meta-analysis that discusses treatment approaches for super refractory status epilepticus. So they included 95 articles and 30 conference abstracts. 30 conference abstracts. Tell us information is limited without telling us. So the 
how they defined this was status epilepticus that continues or recurs 24 hours or more after the onset or initiation of anesthetic therapy. So the findings weren't super warm and fuzzy, unfortunately. The hospital mortality in these groups was between 20 and 25%. Less than 10% were completely independent. And the average number of agents tried is five. And if you're curious, figure 3E in the article, it shows the most common agents used. So it kind of gives you a, a peek as to maybe what some of the practice is being done across the country. Now, they also stratify patients into two groups. You'll see data set one, and that's studies that had 10 or more patients, and data set two, which are those who had less than 10 patients, and they're more like case reports, case series, right? They have that individual patient data in detail, and outcomes didn't differ for things like like successful treatment or in-hospital mortality. Now, you should pull a supplementary appendix for every article, but definitely do it here. Lots of great info. The E-Table 2 it highlights patient demographics, but also breaks them up based on the type of study. Was this an abstract? Was this a case report? So really, really cool. Um, they also include a previously unpublished data set, which I always love when, when studies do that, when they just include this data that's nowhere. Can't explain why. Either way, uh, got more patients looking at, and it's a really great descriptive study of what's currently happening with both treatment and outcomes in super refractory status epilepticus. Now, we wouldn't be closing out the neuro section without a really creative meta-analysis looking at a very specific acute ischemic stroke population. And this Lancet review is an individual patient data meta-analysis of six RCTs. Which ones, you may ask? Direct MT, DEVD, SKIP, Mr. Clean No IV, which is the best name of all of these, Swift Direct and Direct Safe. And then of note, so this was called like the IRIS study or the IRIS group that did this. And they had two uh, PI representatives from all the trials involved. So that's how they were able to kind of share that data. And I told you we were going to put a pin in thrombolytic treatment pre-thrombectomy. And what the authors looked at here was to assess the non-inferiority of endovascular treatment alone versus thrombolytic treatment prior to endovascular treatment. So remember, in both optimal BP and BEST-2, the majority of patients did not receive any thrombolytics, less than 50%, even lower in the optimal BP. So just over 2,300 patients included in the pooled analysis And of note, these patients presented directly to a stroke center. So these were not uh, dripping ships. Uh, They were not transferred to a higher level of care, right? And of note, all studies use alteplase as their thrombolytic agent of choice. And that is something as the world is shifting to tenecteplase, hand up, I'm team tenecteplase. But we got to remember that most of the data with some of these things is done with alteplase. So um, the authors did not establish non-inferiority. Wow, that was a tongue twister. So the thrombolysis prior to thrombectomy remains the champ. Champ is here. All right. Um, Now we're going to shift gears here from our neurosection and we are going to let it bleed with our trauma section. Caroline's going to kick off our trauma section talking about a phenomenon that could honestly be confused with a new roller coaster. So take it away. 
Yeah, so this letter to the editor describes a tag tracing that could indicate bedside care is becoming futile. The authors reference a February study in the Journal of Trauma and Acute Care Surgery reaching, uh, researching blood products um, in trauma resuscitation and survival. Their retrospective study found that the receipt receiving, I guess, of greater than 16 units in a four-hour period had a low chance of survival, and those receiving greater than 36 units in a four-hour period is associated with almost 100% mortality. The authors of this letter point out that viscoelastographic testing, such as thromboelastographs or TEG, were not utilized in this study. TEG has been useful in enabling goal-directed product, blood product resuscitation and improved mortality while also decreasing excessive blood product usage. A specific TEG pattern recognized in 2015 called a death diamond correlates strongly with futile resuscitation. This is defined as a time to maximum amplitude or MA of less than 14 minutes and a time from maximum ampl- in a time to total lysis or L by 30 of less than 30 minutes. As you can imagine from the name, it looks like a diamond, and instead of the normal small stem champagne flute. In the original 2015 cohort, only 2.4% of patients had a death diamond pattern on their tag, yet those patients received the most blood products at about 36 units of packed red blood cells in less than four hours. This is indicated as fetal resuscitation defined by Loudon and colleagues. A 2022 follow-up to the 2015 death diamond found that serial death diamond tag tracings was associated with 100% mortality. Given these findings, the authors concluded it's important that the trauma team consider cessation of resuscitation when serial death diamonds occur as the patient has likely deteriorated to irreversible hemostatic exhaustion and early trauma-induced coagulopathy. Defining a threshold of packed red blood cells in four hours, along with specific tag tracing findings, in addition to laboratory markers of shock, may help reduce blood product usage in critically ill trauma patients. Anytime we can get a champagne reference into the episode, you know (laughs) it's a good one. Um, So, Caroline, you did a good job of describing the tracing. Have you ever seen one of those death diamond tag tracings? I haven't, actually. Surprisingly, yeah. I I haven't I haven't either. Um, but I thought it was interesting, right? They that serial tracings uh, predicted a hundred percent mortality, right? So that twenty twenty two study, they had fifty patients with a death diamond tracing, and ten of those had a duplicate. So we're like getting smaller and smaller and smaller in it. But obviously, in those ten patients, the mortality is hundred percent about as bad as your prognosis can be. So um, hypothesis generating, things to consider. I think the idea of completely like, yes, of course we should be using viscoelastic testing, but in areas that they don't have it, having information from specific blood products, I think is a good thing. So I see both sides of it. Um, I think this is great info for us to have. Now, next in our Traumarama section, uh, there are two articles from the Clinical Controversy Series in the Annals of Emergency Medicine. So specifically, they discuss the reversal of factor 10A inhibitors and the preferred reversal agent. So 
three friends of the pod are on two of these articles, Caitlin Brown, Brian Gilbert, Megan Reck. Uh, awesome. I'm guessing when Garrett picked this study, he did not know that I was going to be on the other side of this argument. But Garrett will start by reviewing the pro-PCC stance. So the floor is yours. So as you said, uh, one of the more controversial issues within current pharmacy practice is how to actually reverse anticoagulant effects of our factor 10A inhibitors. If you talk to 10 different emergency medicine physicians or pharmacists, chances are there's not going to be a consensus amongst all 10 as to what product they would preferentially use. As this clinical controversy article um, published in the Annals of Emergency Medicine states, while there is currently an FDA-approved reversal agent indexed into alpha, clinical guidelines make recommendations for the use of prothrombin complex concentrate. The authors also highlight the lack of randomized controlled trials to compel practitioners to implement indexed into alpha over PCC. Instead, Currently available trials for major intracranial hemorrhage consist primarily of retrospective studies. These studies have shown similar results amongst patients treated with indexinet alpha and those who receive PCC. However, indexinet alpha has been associated with increased rates of thromboembolic events. The authors note that the rate of thrombosis was 10.7% in the indexinet alpha cohorts compared to 3.1% in our PCC cohorts. In addition, the implementation of indexinet alpha and reversal strategies can contribute to significantly higher costs without a comparative increase in reimbursement for hospital systems. Conservative cost estimates project an expenditure of approximately $22,000 for indexinet alpha compared to $6,000 for four-factor PCC. In the ever-important world of finding savings within operating budgets, inflated costs without comparable reimbursement shifts, the additional cost of indexinet alpha to either a patient's or the hospital system. Each of these outcomes must be weighed as new studies regarding index net alpha usage compared to PCC are released over the coming years when institutions are determining which agents to keep on formulary, how to restrict usage, and how to educate their providers on how to reverse life-threatening bleeds associated with DOAX. When faced with the need for an anti-10A reversal, I'm personally a pro-PCC person and will reach for PCC um, for reversal for my patients. The listeners know my thoughts on PCC and its use for factor 10A inhibitor reversal. But Garrett, I'm not helping out your argument today. So let's move right into the defense of indexinate alpha. Um, and uh, Caitlin and Brian authored this side, this side. Whenever you say like this side, doesn't always make you think of remember the Titans, strong side, left side. So quick aside, but those two highlight two points that I want to make uh, the two um, authors. So number one, the thrombotic event rate from the Inexa 4 trial was around 10%. But when you dive in a bit, about two-thirds were almost one week post-reversal. So I think it's, you know, they ask a good question. I agree. I think it's a good one as well. Is the thrombotic risk from the disease state or the drug itself? They also highlight the cost reduction, if you've been anywhere around anybody that is pro index and alpha, they have also told you about the cost reduction, but it's true. Pleasant surprise. Uh, it's decreased by over 50%. Um, to me, we are still waiting for those amazing Inexa I results showing excellent hemostatic efficacy compared to usual care. Uh, still waiting. Uh, until that happens, can we really say one of the is definitively better than the other. I feel like it's just like we're arguing politics or our favorite sports teams at this point that it, like, there's just not going to be a real winner, but I think you can make easily points on both sides. Strong work. 
Now the argument's over, Garrett. I am pro PCC, so all right, we're on the same team there. But we weren't back. We weren't back there in our trauma rama section. Okay, we're moving into what is our favorite part of the episode. That is correct, folks. We are moving to the front of the fridge for our pharmacist featured articles. We're going to get a little a little serious here for just a second. And many of us know Jason Mordino from his old Twitter account, RIP, um, the podcast Precept Responsibly, where you've been lucky enough to work with or collaborate with him. And he wrote a JACCP editorial uh, reflecting on his experience during and after the Boston Marathon bombing, which should 100% be required reading for all. All acute care pharmacists, I don't care your specialty, your hospital, your age, it doesn't matter because, you know, he opens up about some of his pain, his trauma, his coping and his healing, but he also highlights the teamwork that everyone displayed in the hospital after the bombing. If you've been in a hospital or a unit during a time of crisis, it's just all hands on deck. How can you help out? And, and I like that. Of course, he's going to talk about a lot of the hard times, but he also describes, right, that teamwork feeling. And I think even if you weren't in Boston that day, you will likely relate to those feelings he describes. Um, Thank you to Jason for not only sharing his story, but allowing us to learn from him in this reflection as well. You know, my only advice, have a tissue handy. It's going to get a little misty. It's going to get a little misty. It's extremely, extremely well-written. I know he spent a lot of time trying to put his his thoughts and feelings into words. So I think he did an incredible job there. Now let's shift gears here just a second and talk about our three listener voted articles. And if you're wondering, what does that even mean? So we have three categories. And if you follow us on Twitter or Instagram at pharmacy to dose, you get to vote on what articles we talk about here. So the first article, right? The first vote had a clinical theme and the winner of the listener-driven vote was from our colleagues in Michigan. Not going to lie, it's not many times you want to be in Michigan in the winter. But right now, it's great. University of Michigan, Detroit Lions, winner of article number one vote. It's a great time to be from Michigan. So the winning article was published in Pharmacotherapy, and it was entitled Biomarkers in the Intensive Care Setting, a focus on using procalcitonin and C-reactive protein to optimize antimicrobial duration. So I learned that CRP is not a completely worthless lab. There are good things with it. But honestly, this is a really great review on the use of these two labs for the non-ID clinician or pharmacist. Because as you'd expect, it has, you know, the pharmacotherapy articles typically will go into great detail. And table one and table two has fantastic details into the studies behind recommendations on using CRP and procalcitonin. I think it's a really practical look at using these biomarkers and discusses not only the pros, but the cons, um, and then future directions and other research opportunities. So um, something to tuck away, definitely be helpful if you're trying to implement some sort of protocol with this. So we're going to shift from that clinical themed article to a like professional development precepting theme. And we return to Boston with this JACCP article, which describes a survey on emergency response training for critical care and emergency medicine pharmacy residents. Wow, 
how timely we got Caroline and Garrett here. So an example emergency response, right? That'd be like a code response, code blue. So the authors point out that not only is pharmacist training for emergency response essential, but this can also help PGY1s help identify programs that align with their career goal, right? If they're interested in that, they can go towards programs that really emphasize that. But they point out there's not great data on how residents or anyone is trained to become independent emergency responders. So they surveyed RPDs. They got about 85 responses. And what they found is that most programs, they offer emergency response as a core and longitudinal experience, but that the EM programs, they had more of an emphasis on it, which does make sense. And your training varied. Everything from mannequin simulation, oh, that's got to be RQI, ACLS, being paired with a preceptor, PALS, all different types of things. So there's no um, consensus. So I think this is a great survey, great research into helping improve our training, make sure those learners are being prepared to be independent on their own. And the last article, article number three, the winner of the listener-driven vote. Now, this group of articles had an incredible theme, and it was PharmD Interventions. And the winner is the Farm Crit Service Research Study published in JACCP. Lots of familiar names on this author list. Shout out Keaton and Megan, first and last authors. Uh, this was an exploratory analysis from the Farm Crit Study, right? The Farm Crit Study looked at ICU pharmacist interventions. And this paper specifically was analyzing how covering or rounding on multiple services compared to one service impacts interventions made or accepted. So out of all the pharmacists that participate in the FarmCrit study, 28 of them cover two or more services. And like, I think we might expect, but it's, exclu- it's great to see the data. Pharmacists rounding on one service had a higher percent of accepted interventions compared to both no rounding and rounding on multiple services. They also had more attempted It makes sense, right? You have more time to dig in and get some of those things, right? When we're stretched too thin, we are unable to do our job as well as we can be, right? So great research from the Farm Crit Study Group. So we always end with a non-clinical article in our grab bag. And I'm telling you, this may be one of our best yet. Why is it so amazing, you may ask? Because it combines medicine and Oktoberfest. I know, right? You're already in. It's entitled Mobile CT at Munich Oktoberfest. So this New England Journal of Medicine letter to the editor, it describes how challenging Oktoberfest is for EMS crews due to the high level of intoxication and injuries. So hand up. I've been there. And I can 100% agree that has to be an absolute nightmare. But to help account for this, in 2022, they put a mobile CT scanner on the festival grounds. Turns out people get drunk and hit their head like a lot. So 205 patients with a presumed TBI got scanned and they identified 11 intracranial bleeds, 23 facial fractures, and maybe even more importantly, they were able to rule out cervical spine injuries in all the patients. So compared to historical data, it reduced the number of patients transported via EMS by seven a day. They even, listen to this, shout out to the researchers on this letter. They researched local hospital admissions and found lower trauma surgical admissions during Oktoberfest. 
What a great idea. So glad they published this information. Uh, 10 out of 10. I want all the letters to be that amazing. That being said, that is our September 2023 literature review series. Caroline Garrett, breathe easy. You made it. And they're the first ones being filmed for the YouTube channel. So I appreciate y'all. Any last words, any parting words? Because the, the listeners, right, they, they know that you work with me. <laughs> Thanks so much for having us. <laughs> Nick and I have actually had a great past couple of weeks together. Great. He's helped cover the service I was rounding on, and I think we had a great time. Great time. So whenever I'm there, substitute teacher time. So it's <laughs> yeah. always fun. Yeah, it's always a great time when you're there. It's it's always fun hearing you come down the hall and everyone knows you. Um, so it's a great, great time hearing you come in. You so, can always hear me yeah. before you see me. For the yeah. record, I gave them carte blanche to call me out for things, and that was their answers. Y'all are the best. Uh, but seriously, <laughs> Caroline and Garrett, thank you all so much. PGY2EM and Crit Care at IU Health in Indianapolis. See y'all later. Huge, huge, huge thanks again to uh, Garrett and Caroline. Uh, remember, the YouTube version is coming. Thanks for your patience. The reference list with the articles we discussed today and more, it's featured in that podcast episode description as well as the website pharmacy2dose.com. And until next time, I'm Nick Peters, and this is Pharmacy to Dose, the critical care podcast. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The Critical Care PRN optimizes drug therapy outcomes by promoting excellence and innovation in clinical pharmacy practice, research, and education. For more information, go to critprn.accp.com. Again, that is critprn.accp.com. The podcast provides general information only and does not offer individualized medical or professional healthcare services, including pharmaceutical advice. The content and materials in the podcast are not intended to be a substitute for inpatient pharmaceutical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Use of the content and materials in the podcast does not constitute a pharmacist-patient relationship. As a result, the information in and materials linked to this podcast are applied at the user or patient's own risk. Users and patients should consult their physician or personal healthcare professional. Users or patients should not ignore or delay seeking care because of something they heard on this podcast. In case of an emergency, the user or patient should contact their physician, call 911, or go to the nearest medical emergency facility. The views and statements expressed on this podcast are those of the host and guests and should not be interpreted to reflect the official position or policy of ACCP or the Critical Care PRN. ACP and the Critical Care Bureau disclaim any and all liability or responsibility for any direct, indirect, incidental, special, consequential, or any other damages, including without limitation, loss of profits arising out of any use of reference to, reliance on, or inability to use the podcast, its contents, and materials.